last call for nuts. Give me nuts in my mouth. Give me nuts. You want some nuts, Dick? Nuts. No. Fine. Cashews. I used to hate these when I was a kid, but what? now I fucking love them. How do you hate nuts? I find a way. All right, everybody got their document open? I think so. Cassie's got her loud-ass water bottle. Look. Check. Jake is here. Check. Last part of season two. Check. Freddie Mercury on our way. Yes, the uh, long-awaited remake. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Death by Music Podcast. I am Jake, as always. Uh, I am here with Cassie and Alex, and this is part of season 2.2. And what that is, is we are going back and re-recording first two seasons because uh, we believe that our content and overall audio quality has increased as we've been learning how to do this shit. And uh, so we've decided to go redo them, especially since I was not on seasons one and two. So... Yeah. Here we go. Let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah. So at this point in time, we've already recorded seasons three and four and released them. Um, so if you are listening to the podcast in order from the first episode, uh, you might notice some interesting changes. And that is that we we stopped after season four, came back, and we are now working backwards through seasons one and two to add Jake and more information. You could have just really confused everybody by not saying that at all. And oh my god, maybe I'll cut the whole thing out. Hearing just different content. They're like, like maybe this is sh- not what they said before. It's like how everyone thinks they're on a multi multiverse oh my timeline. God. We are creating the <laughs> the multiverse. No, the Bernstein the Mandela effect. Oh yeah, yeah. You heard this before. Yeah. Remember? Someone's gonna go back and be like, wait a minute, I don't fucking remember Jake being on it, but they're saying that he's on it, and they're acting he's like there. he's been on it the whole time. But he has. I don't remember that. And We're then other people, <laughs> other people are coming to this for the first time and being like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about because I've only ever known Jake to be on this podcast. Right. In our so heart of hearts, he was the one true third beetle. <laughs> <laughs> Yeehaw. Okay. Yeehaw, motherfuckers. All right. So today we're talking about Freddie Mercury. Um, our sources include Wikipedia, American Addiction Centers dot org, uh, Somebody to Love, The Life, Death, and Legacy of Freddie Mercury by Mark Langthorne and Matt Richards. We use biography.com, 10 Surprising Facts About Freddie Mercury by Stacey Conrad. Uh, Fact Checking the Queen Biopic Bohemian Rhapsody by Am- Andy Green. Mayo Clinic.org. Uh, publichealth.org, 10 Things You May Not Know About Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody by Fraser McAlpine and Britannica.com. Why was Freddie Mercury never knighted? I don't know. Was he not? Hmm. You guys are both looking at me like I would know You should answer. know. <laughs> <laughs> when somebody questioned me today about my knowledge of music, I was like, don't question me. I know everything. And Just not like, this. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't get knighted. Uh, okay. Many of our listeners... We're probably around and remember the HIV and AIDS outbreak in the 1980s. My memory is a little foggy, but I do seem to recall some such happenings. My knowledge came from the plot of Forrest Gump. Mm -hmm. Bet you wouldn't have guessed that. No, I (laughs) absolutely would have. (laughs) I will say, though, I've seen that movie a hundred times and it took me until like recently to realize that Jenny dies from AIDS. Mm hmm. Um, I don't know why I couldn't put two and two together, but here we are. I'm not the brightest crayon in the box. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I guess I wasn't really aware of the scare that AIDS had back then. Yeah. It's only like learning. I mean, I wasn't alive, so it's learning about it now. You're like, oh my gosh, people were really. Yeah. And how fucking serious it was. Um, so it likely, we're going to go into the history of where it's believed to have originated and whatnot, and then we'll go into Freddie Mercury. So it's just important to know the landscape and uh, what was going on 
at the time as it involves his story. So it likely first came to America as early as the 1960s and was spread unbeknownst to doctors and scientists. It was noticed in 1981 after doctors found clusters of Kaposi sarcoma, which is a type of cancer that causes skin lesions and pneumonocystic pneumonia. Both of those were popping up in LA and San Francisco. Scientists started to connect the dots between these issues and other infections. And by the year end 1981, the first case of AIDS was diagnosed. It stands for Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. So even in 2022, there is not a cure for AIDS, but according to the Mayo Clinic website, there are many medications that can control HIV and prevent complications. They're called antiretroviral therapy, which is... um, Is that how you say that? I don't know. I thought it was (laughs) antiretroviral. Sure. Retrovial. That. Retrovial. That's not Retrovial. I mean, it's, it depends on, yeah, where, you, where you live. How like you, I said, uh, tomato, tomato. <laughs> <laughs> um, the medication, what it does, it basically combines a triple threat to help your immune system block the virus from getting stronger, making new strains, and so on. Um, that being said, science has come a long way since this whole thing started. Yeah, so the book Somebody to Love details a likely chain of events. In the early 1900s, a hunter in the Belgian Congo snared an infected chimpanzee for the purpose of selling meat and fur. Ah, yes. Nothing like some good old medium-rare ape meat. I think a chimpanzee is a monkey, not an ape. I actually don't know. Does it have Uh, a tail? No, chimps do not have tails, so they are apes. Okay, my friend Holly in college drilled that into my brain because every time we go to the zoo we'd see the orangutans and i would be like look at the monkeys and she's like they're not monkeys yeah don't say that in front of uh the 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 orangutans they'll fucking murder you no don't say that in front of michelle she'll do the same thing oh okay well (laughs) wow y'all are really she's she's very into that you do not call something a monkey that is not a monkey okay what about the monkeys (laughs) uh i don't think they had tails they didn't have tails. Their so stories are tails yeah. from Fucking beyond. Posers. Okay. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's like the Beach Boys. <laughs> Sorry. Right. So, while capturing the animal, this guy was bitten and his blood and the chimp's blood mixed. So, the virus began to spread in his body. Then he went to town to sell the meat. Uh, while he was there, he slept with a prostitute or two. The disease continued to spread while confined to the Belgian Congo. Now, later European doctors came to treat the sleeping sickness using as few as six hypodermic syringes on 5,300 patients. Their cleaning methods involved rinsing the needles in water and alcohol, but any trace amounts of infected blood could transmit the virus. I'm so glad medicinal standards have changed. As it made its way across America in the 1980s, there was much concern to do with how these diseases were spreading. They did see connections between gay men and needle-using drug users, so these people were identified as at-risk. People who required blood transfusions were also defined as an at-risk group. Then there was the Haiti AIDS outbreak, which made it more confusing. Heterosexual couples were contracting it, as well as newborn babies from their mothers. Right off the bat, people wrote it off as a gay-related immune deficiency. Gay cancer and other shit like that. But more and more, people kept contracting it. So the prejudicial assumptions against gay communities or drug users had to be thrown out. It took another year before HIV was suggested to be an STD or bloodborne, but the damage had been done to certain communities already. Yeah, um, on a podcast that I listened to quite a bit, there was um, an episode about Princess Diana. You're wrong about. What did I say? 
just an episode or you said there was a podcast you listened to but you didn't name it oh i feel like you should name it <laughs> probably yeah it's called you're wrong about podcasts and they just tell you everything that you've ever known that is wrong um and they go into detail um about how princess diana worked specifically with those who had aids because she was trying to de- destigmatize the- those that were diagnosed with it she actually had a close friend of hers die from the disease and the royal family was pissed because she went to his funeral because they weren't supposed to be seen with people like that Fuck those nerds. it was all kinds of shit so part of the podcast was discussing that the media was actually giving diana crap for taking photos with or bringing her sons around aids patients because she was trying to look like she cared for them when in reality she really did. Um, yeah, they were they saying just, it was just a photo yeah, op. Yeah, they're like, oh, she's doing it as a photo op. She doesn't actually care. Um, she, you know, she was showing people because she was like holding their hands in that. She had her kids around. A lot of people thought that just like by breathing the same air as someone with AIDS that you would contract it. Yeah, like, so she like was, leprosy or something. Yeah. So she was just showing just by being in the same room. She had such an impact because people were like, oh, like you can be around other people with AIDS and not get it because they didn't really even know where it came from. The misinformation was strong. Exactly. No one at the time had experienced anything like this before. And there was a severe lack of information on it. So people are like, we don't know how this. Oh, the birds. I feel like birds. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Those are birds. Start talking about Princess Diana. You get snow white birds out of it. Oh, my God. That's (laughs) that's really cute. (laughs) But yeah, there, like I was saying, lack of information, everybody's going to be like, you know, we don't know how this is going around, so sure. if you're in the same room with everybody. But I'm sure whatever info there was that was out there already probably helped, but you, they, they didn't have the, the sources of information like we have today. So I think her doing this definitely helped accelerate the knowledge of the general population, the group that was actually paying attention to her. I know it was a large Dude, group back then. Everybody was paying attention to her. So yeah, that was I know. Huge. I, I, yeah. I, I remember watching the news and back in the day and it was like nothing but Princess Diana. Everyone was obsessed with her. So, yeah. I mean, that's a really big move for her to uh, try and destigmatize that. Um, so, for a long time, HIV and AIDS were poorly, very poorly understood. Televangelist Jerry Falwell infamously spouted that God sent AIDS to punish gay men and drug-using communities and mass hysteria ensued. I still can't believe people trust televangelists, but right. here we are in 2022 and it still happens. You know, Pat Robertson <laughs> has been saying shit like that for decades. Yeah. Uh, fun fact, 700 Club is pretty much uh, made in our backyard here. Also PETA, so go Hampton Roads. And uh, <laughs> I would like to say between the three of us, the 700 Club, PETA, and us here at Death by Music Podcast, we do create the Bermuda Triangle <laughs> Wasn't of that? Hampton Roads. <laughs> is, isn't that debunked? What Did the Bermuda, Bermuda Triangle? Triangle? No way, was it? No, don't do it right okay. now. <laughs> Let's spiral out of control <laughs> here. Take a note. Take a note, um, and we'll talk about it later. Give me a piece oh of God! Paper. Don't spill my nuts. All over the gay sex book. Oh my yeah! Somebody already spilled. I know. Up. I have Nick Cannon. <laughs> oh yeah, I wanted to um, learn about him. Maybe the next mini episode, we'll talk about Nick Cannon and the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> <laughs> The two we go can, hand we can, in hand. We can talk about the Bermuda Triangle as a mini episode because it does have to do with music because Why? a triangle is an instrument. Stop. So there we go. It relates. It's good connection. I know. I'm great at connections because I'm in radio. Um, okay. Businesses that catered to gay people were shut down. People wore gloves and masks to protect themselves. Across the world, AIDS activists were put in jail. Homosexuality was still criminal in a lot of places, if not just taboo. Uh, some good stuff did eventually come out of this, like the nation's first needle exchange program. 
Yeah, so they created these needle exchange programs, also known as syringe services, which sounds cooler because we love alliteration here. But the programs provide new and sterile syringes to drug users. Some programs, not all, but some offer medical treatment for the infectious diseases caused by needle use. They also might provide, you know, substance abuse treatment referrals, etc. Yeah. So if needles could potentially be unsafe, then what does that mean for the country's blood supply? Would it all be contaminated? Additionally, the 80s are when the whole safe sex campaign started, which is also super important. Condoms used to be embarrassing. Now they were less taboo and used more than ever before. Yes. I'm you, just Cassie didn't use a condom. <laughs> <laughs> At least once. Look, we're not getting into it. Okay. <laughs> Cuz Dan already did. <laughs> Um, I'm sorry. As we're recording this, maybe you guys didn't know in seasons one and two, but Cassie's <laughs> popping out a baby here soon in September of 2022 <laughs> as we re-record. So um, she's currently pregnant. If she breathes really heavily, it's because she's always out of breath because that baby's on her lungs. God damn it. Um, also. It, Am I breathing heavy? No, no, no. Oh, but you've said like, that before. You just yeah. grabbed your boobs when you said um, you my said lungs. That, my lungs are under here. In an episode before where yeah. you were like, oh my God, I'm out of breath. I'm so like out of breath since I've been pregnant. I was visiting my mom today because she was giving me stuff for the baby shower. And all I had to do was like walk up the driveway into their house. And I got there and she was like, are you okay? You're out of breath. I was like, yeah, I'm pregnant. <laughs> like, <laughs> remember? It's hot outside. It's like 95 degrees outside. Yeah. In 1983, the mounting cases resulted in the virus being classified as an epidemic, not just in America, but in countries all over the world. The mortality rate was reaching 100% and something had to be done. In 1978, the FDA was running a trial that found a Azimedine. AZT. I don't know how to say that. AZT is what we're going to call it for short. Was an effective treatment. It was actually going so well that they canceled the trials. Bad idea. To give the placebo patients the actual drug. um, Because they decided it would be cruel and unethical not to give them something that was helping. Things need to be tested. That's true. They thought at the time, they were like, this is going to be great because it's working. It's, It's, we can't in good conscience not give everybody the the right treatment because it's working in these other guys so they cancel all the trials that was a bad idea um 10 years later in 1993 there had been over 2.5 million confirmed cases worldwide and aids was the leading cause of death in the united states for ages 25 to 44 we lost so many people friends family entertainers artists athletes Uh, One of those is who we are talking about today, Freddie Mercury of Queen. In 1997, a global standard of care was established for those infected with HIV and AIDS. But that was too late for Freddie, who succumbed to AIDS on November 24th of 1991. So let's start at the beginning of this incredible musician and human being's career, bearing in mind that, as with all of our stories, this one will end in tragedy. Freddie Mercury was born Farouk Balsara on September 5th of 1946 in Stonetown, a part of Zanzibar in Tanzania. That day was the Parsi New Year. Now, Freddie's father was Parsi. It's a religious group following Zoroaster, an Iranian prophet. Tanzania is located on the coast in East Africa on the Indian Ocean. His parents were Bomi and Jur Balsara from India. 
who later emigrated to Zanzibar for work. Bomi was very dedicated and a hard worker, and he made a good life for his family in Zanzibar. Uh, they were able to have a servant and a car and enjoyed a pretty high standard of living. I, I honestly didn't know he wasn't even a white British guy until a few years ago. So that, yeah, that like, was like kind of mind blowing to learn that he was he's from Africa. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Zanzibar. What did you learn that in uh, fucking Bohemian Rhapsody? No, it was before that. Yeah. I had no clue. Yeah. So as a kid, talking around five years old, Freddie was showing interest in music and performing. He enjoyed singing and listening to music. Does that really come as a shock? No. Now, as he grew older, he wouldn't see his parents, but once a year in the summer. Hell yeah. Uh, he was attending a new boarding school. I'm sorry, Mom. I didn't mean that. Um, <laughs> so his mom specifically mentioned in the book, quote, I cried when we left him, but he just mingled with the other boys. Regardless, later on in life, Freddie rarely spoke of his schooling in India. His friends say that he would rather describe himself as Persian than Indian, that it sounded more exotic. Well, it's also not far from the truth either. The name Parsi means Persian. Uh, the Parsi people are descendants of the Persian Zoroastrians, as we just mentioned, who emigrated to India to avoid religious persecution uh, by Muslims. So he was Persian. Nice cats. Nice rugs. Freddie likes cats, too. Nice fucking rugs. You're right. <laughs> Freddie claimed his time in boarding school away from his family helped him become independent and responsible. He did indicate in interviews that abuse, possibly physical and sexual, had happened at that school. Yeah, I read the same thing. It's also believed that a lot of his anxiety and insecurities stemmed partially, at least, from his boarding school experience. Mary Austin says he suffered from uh, separation anxiety, even as an adult. School staff later commented that Freddie's homosexuality Sexuality was apparent while he was a child attending the school that he had a boyfriend and called the other boys darling but at that point they didn't understand why he was acting like that his mother just said that he was different freddie also looked different he had four extra teeth in his mouth that pushed his front teeth forward and gave him a giant overbite so his peers began to call him bucky but teachers gave him the nickname freddie Mercury never actually got his teeth fixed as he was too afraid it would ruin his four octave vocal range, which, yeah, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But um, in 2016, a team of scientists actually studied his vocal range and they concluded that Mercury's vocal cords moved faster than the average person's. And according to Consequence of Sound, a typical vibrato fluctuates between 5.4 hertz and 6.9 hertz. But Freddie's was about 7.04 hertz. So, yeah, he, he did have some wicked vibrato. If you ever listen to him, you'll notice it. I never listen to Freddie Mercury ever. What the <laughs> fuck is wrong with you? I'm just kidding. God oh, damn okay. it. Uh, <laughs> Freddie was doing it all in school. He excelled at pretty much every sport, but was also interested in art, music, literature, and theater. His aunt heard Freddie playing piano by ear, mimicking the songs on the radio and convinced his parents to enroll him in music lessons. His first band, The Hectics, followed soon after in 1958 with his schoolmates, and they were inspired by Elvis. But Freddie failed out in the 10th grade and had to return to Zanzibar. See, Jake, you're not the only one to flunk. Freddie was... Thanks. <laughs> Freddie Mercury did it. You'll be great someday, I'm sure. Uh, eventually. It's, it's coming. <laughs> Freddie was obsessed with Western pop culture, desperate to get to England, and he eventually did. But it wasn't that easy. Uh, his family ended up fleeing Zanzibar after a culture war. It became an unsafe place for Arab and Asian people. So the whole family fled to a town in West London. It's a big change going from warm and beautiful Zanzibar to dirty wet london but who doesn't enjoy a dirty wet one every once in a while 
um, as long as you got your dude wipes, it right. should be fine. Exactly. Freddie's parents wanted him to pursue a solid career, you know, lawyer, accountant, etc. But he wanted to go to art school and be a pop star. <laughs> Just a few streets away was a young Brian May, the love of my life, studying physics, but yearning to get a new Fender Stratocaster. Brian couldn't afford one, so he built one. So I, I thought maybe he'd taken an old guitar and rewired it and swapped parts out and whatnot, but he legit made his own guitar with his dad in the mid-60s. Yes. It's called the Red Special. Everybody's seen it, at least if you watch Queen. The neck was made from an old fireplace mantle. What? The body is made from plywood, pieces of an old oak table, and a mahogany veneer. The tremolo system is made from old motorcycle parts. And according to May, it might be the first guitar in the world to have a tremolo with almost no friction due to the rollers he built into the bridge and zero fret at the top of the neck. Uh, just mind-blowing. It, it, it really explains his absolutely unique sound that I have never heard any other guitar player have because he literally built his own guitar. You know, his favorite food is grapefruit. Cool. Yes, we learned about that a few mini episodes ago. Well, well no, they, the they don't know in the future. Yes, we learned about that in the future. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we should just do, start referring to. Everything after this is what we did in the future. Uh, so while Freddie attended art school, he became captivated with Jimi Hendrix. There was a guy with great hair, great style, great presence, and a ton of talent. That's who Freddie wanted to be. He saw Hendrix 14 times all around London. Wow. Now, he wasn't doing so great in school and almost got kicked out, but he convinced them to just let him switch classes, which is where he started to meet like-minded music enthusiasts, including Tim Staffel. Now, this guy played harmonica and was asked to join a band called 1984 with Brian May. How Orwellian of them. How back to the future of them. I think that takes place in 84. I think that's also the year that Jake was born. 1884, I mean. Oh, sure. That makes more sense. I will read my part as soon as the computer reboots. Oh, oh my God, no. your computer because just it shut fucking, down? it froze. I had to start it up, <laughs> restart it. <laughs> I wondered what was going on over there. Do you want mine? What should we do while we wait? Eat some nuts? Or you just sit here and just stare just at each sit other? Here awkwardly stare at each other. Oh, it's up. No, Back to the Future takes place in 1985. It was also released in 1985, but 84 is a good year, if okay. I do say so myself. Ninja Turtles happened. The first comic came out. The Terminator, Ghostbusters, Hulk Hogan won his first championship, brother. Alex Trebek began hosting Jeopardy. Uh, Michael Jackson caught on fire. (laughs) Michael Jackson's name wrong. (laughs) Jackson. Oh, autocorrect. It's failing me there. Um, Yes, and even the cause of AIDS was discovered, which we all know is HIV. So this group, 1984 ended up opening for Jimi Hendrix in 1967, and Freddie attended that show. So he actually became a regular at the 1984 shows, but in 1968, Brian quit the band because he was sick of playing cover songs. A true babe. No one wants to hear Wagon Wheel again. Uh, Freddie was desperate to get into music, but he didn't have the shining personality we know of him at that time. He wrote songs, but he kept them to himself, and he continued following his musician friends around. 
Somewhere around 1964, Mercury joined a blues group known as Wreckage. And this is where he started to be, you know, the onstage acrobat we know and love um, that later made him famous. He became well known in the community because of his campy mannerisms and clothing choices. The fact that he experimented with makeup and crazy hairstyles also helped solidify his star status because nobody was doing it back then. Yeah. Staffel and May ended up trying to form another band. Uh, and they put out an ad for a drummer. That guy would end up being Roger Taylor. They called the group Smile. Alex One of my least names. favorite words. <laughs> and Freddie <laughs> became one of their regulars. I should have said groupies. He would give the group advice and then ride with them to gigs. And he told them that rock should be a show and that the performers should be overwhelming in every way. In 1969, Freddie and Roger Taylor became roommates. <laughs> And they even worked in the same clothing boutique together. You know, on the side of the band stuff. Smile was doing okay, but Mercury's band Wreckage was not doing too hot. By 1970, he left Wreckage and joined Sour Milk Sea. Mm. Yum! Obviously, that band did not last long. They curdled. That's cottage cheese. <laughs> That's still... That, that joke still um, <laughs> I see that you've written in here cottage cheese anecdote. Oh, would you like to hear that? Yes, I would. Well, it's sort of a story, but not really. It's okay. just a thing that exists. Cottage cheese doesn't exist. Cottage yeah. cheese out in public restaurants generally doesn't exist unless you go to a salad bar, correct? There sometimes yeah. is cottage cheese. Here. I've never that, seen it on a menu. Right. I've never wanted to order it, but continue. So <laughs> I have, and I have <laughs> ordered it. Um, Where? There is a Cracker local barrel. burger joint in Grand Rapids, Michigan, oh. not Minnesota. It's called Mr. Burger, and it's the only place I've seen where you can get a side of cottage cheese with your uh, olive burger, which is also a unique thing to that specific joint. I think, I think they sell cottage cheese because if you ever walk into Mr. Burger... Everybody is at least 72 years old. Right. And they don't have teeth, so they have to have it on the menu or yeah, else yeah, these yeah. people would starve. But it's still How good. are they chewing burgers? And that's all basically mush, <laughs> right? Mature. I mean, it's bread. <laughs> it's pretty soft. Burger melts in your mouth. Olives are really small. Mr. You could choke Burger. on an olive and you wouldn't really even choke. It would just slide right down your gullet. Do you like olives? I love olives. Black or green? Both. Okay, that's good. That's good. Jake? Nice. Uh, yeah, both. He's nice. <laughs> Uh, Freddie was so desperate to join Smile, but I guess he just hadn't really been singing around them. Nobody knew that he could. So one night, another group called Ibex played a show with Smile. Now, they had an impromptu jam session, and Freddie joined in on singing. It was clear that Smile wasn't going to let him in, so he set his sights on Ibex, whose singer really wasn't that strong. Uh, and he was immediately accepted. Little different than Bohemian Rhapsody portrayed it. Huh. Yes. Yeah, because it was completely wrong. <gasps> mm -hmm. That movie was so good, though. It yeah. was so good. Um, the Live Aid performance was shot for shot, and it was killer. Rami Malek did an excellent job. That, that had to be the best part of the movie, honestly. Yeah. I think yeah. they were leading up to it on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> However, the movie got quite a few things wrong about Mercury's beginnings. They basically have Freddie show up at the, the gig of Smile in 1970s. Uh, and according to the movie, Mercury meets the band backstage conveniently after Staffel quits. Obviously, the band is skeptical when Mercury is all... How convenient. I'll sing for you, my pretties. Um, but then he belts out doing all right, a rendition of their song anyway. The band's like, okay, cool, you're in. And if only band auditions worked like that. Yeah. <laughs> nope. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was definitely a little disappointed when I saw that movie. What? Like, like I said, the, the shot for shot scene at the end was awesome. But the little bit that I knew about Queen of the Time didn't quite line up with what they were portraying in the story. And I was like, huh? 
Yeah, you know? I think at a certain point with those, you you want to tell like the big parts, but also yeah, you want to make it a good movie. Too. You want it intimate. They, I think they got the overarching story out there. Yeah, but there there were also a lot of complaints from people that actually knew Freddy that they they did he didn't have in the movie the same flair or just personality that Freddy yeah. had. They didn't portray that very well. I liked it. Yeah. Uh, it still beats fucking... Uh, Rocket Man is terrible! <laughs> Don't see it. It's awful. It's not the worst. It's the worst. The costumes are good. Um, all right. Freddy started playing shows with Ibex, and immediately his personality shone on stage. Oh. One of those shows was at a basement venue in Liverpool called The Sink. Smile had also been in Liverpool for their own gig, and they went on to see Ibex afterwards. Roger Taylor and Brian May joined Ibex on stage. Freddie started doing his mic stand thing where he would like only be walking around with the top half of the stand. It was completely by accident. He couldn't get the bottom back on and they didn't have any road crew to come up and fix the thing. So it later became one of his signature moves on stage. Hmm. Once he started to gain confidence, his campiness really started to come out. So Freddie was actually really shy, which is one of the reasons he was never really granted interviews with people. Um, bandmate Roger Taylor said of Mercury, he was shy, gentle, and kind. He was never the one that he was on the stage. Yeah, I think a lot of people are, are like that. I noticed yeah. that with radio people, at least. Um, a lot of my favorite ones, at least, are um, very shy, quiet, reserved. And people wonder, you know, when you go out to a concert, they're like, do you do you like doing stage announcements? Do you like doing all this no. shit? And it's like, no. <laughs> and they're like, well, you do... you." Talk all the time on, on you yeah, never shut up in a box by myself. Yeah, true. Not to <laughs> but a I, million people, but they, there's like something that allows you to become a different person. Yeah, like put on that personality. Especially with musicians, I really think that they have to kind of compartmentalize who they are on stage as a performer versus who are who they are as a person. Yeah, it's. I mean, you could be. What's the word? Ugh, pregnancy brain. You could be <laughs> an extrovert. Mm-hmm. As a performer, especially if you're in a costume. Oh, yeah. Like, I think we talked about this a little mm-hmm. bit with Elvis like you or David Bowie. You could get on stage because essentially you're acting the part. But like yeah. when you go home and you put on sweatpants, you're just like, I'm Dude, here. I'm chilling. If I'm singing karaoke <laughs> and I put on sunglasses, I'm fucking unstoppable. But if I don't have sunglasses... <laughs> I'm, You're an, like, I'm twinkle, embarrassed. I'm twinkle, like, twinkle, little star. <laughs> I'm really shy. <laughs> yes, that's definitely a thing. And I notice it too with the struts. Now, the struts have a lot of glam rock queen type energy. Yeah. While they don't sound like queen, they have the same vibes. And they're like a current rock band, if any of you guys don't know who the struts are. But they put on a fucking killer show and they always come to the radio station beforehand and do some stuff with us and like they'll come up into my office and they're just like sunglasses on fucking turned off they don't really talk to anybody they're like moving real slow and just like they're probably hung over too probably (laughs) exhausted and they're just like so quiet and reserved and just like really don't take up a lot of space you know like they make themselves as small as possible and then they get on stage and they're all fucking like you you gotta recharge yeah i was like they're either like containing their energy for that moment or at the same time it would be exhausting being mm-hmm. that consistently. Oh my god, all the time. Yeah. Like <laughs> you would never you would never get rest yeah. at all. We have a dude on the morning show on Bob FM. Some people may know him, Eric Warden, who is he's on all the time. I'm like, dude, how the fuck 
he will do an entire radio show and his show ends at 10. I come in at 10 because my show starts then. So I'll be walking through the lobby half awake and he's walking out and he's like, there's Alex. Hey, I'm like, bro, please lower. Does he also wake up at like, he, he goes to bed at like nine, probably oh, yeah, seven wakes up at three. Goes on a power walk, eats like a like a, a yogurt bowl, cheese. yeah, <laughs> some type of acai bowl, and Dude, then does yoga, reads know, a book he, while he's doing it. He has so much fucking energy, but he's on all the time. It doesn't matter if it's like in a private conversation with you. He's always on. I'm like, dude, I don't have the energy for that shit. What, I'm only on like five percent of the time. <laughs> what supplements do you have to take for that type of energy? Steroids, or, oh. wait, probably cocaine. I don't know. Cocaine. I'm, I'm getting exhausted just listening to you two. Okay. <laughs> That's not uh, the first time I've heard that, so thank you. <laughs> I'm not saying that Eric Warden is on drugs. I'm just saying I wish that I could naturally have that amount of energy. That's true. Um, okay. So his bandmates in Ibex called Freddy old queen behind his back, but it got confusing when he started dating Rosemary Pearson. Mm, they were actually quite drawn to each other. It's kind of cute. He was genuinely interested in her, and she says that he was always in character, like Eric, even if it was just the two of them. Again, that sounds exhausting. Fuck yeah, it does. Rosemary said that they just felt very close to each other. It was warm and affectionate. She truly had no clue that Freddie might be gay, but she did notice that he was quite drawn to her circle of gay friends. Now, their relationship only lasted a year. Rosemary broke it off in 1970. Freddie begged her to stay, but she knew that they weren't right for each other. And then his band broke up. Double whammy. Yeah. Smile had been dancing on the edge of success with a single contract at Mercury, Mercury Records. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But things were slowing down for them, too. When their singer Tim Staffel left, thank God, they thought for sure that it was all over, but remembered their old groupie, Freddie, who was now without a band. It was perfect. So while everything else seemed to be on the up and up, Freddie was struggling behind the scenes with his sexuality. While homosexuality had been decriminalized for several years in the UK, gay men were still experiencing abuse and even prison in some cases. Uh, but yeah, gay men were put in prison throughout the 50s, even if they were reporting actual crimes and the police just, like, thought they were gay. See the story about Alan Turing. Uh, into the 1960s, it was less of a criminal offense and more considered a mental illness. Men would still be arrested for indecent behavior, like holding hands. Woof. By 1967, it was totally cool to be gay in, in the UK as long as nobody saw you being gay. That's just like those guys that would say, I don't care if you're gay, just don't hit on me or I'll beat the shit out of you. Those guys are always gay. Right. And, but I, I have literally heard people say stuff like that, like growing up and everything. I'm, I, and, you know. I, what gives them the right to think that a gay man would hit on them in the first place? Do they think right. they have they, taste? They've never <laughs> once considered that straight men unsolicitedly hit on women and we don't punch them. Right. We just fucking <laughs> deal with it and move on. Yeah. So we I should start punching. We should. <laughs> Fuck that shit. It also didn't help that the religion Freddie was raised in, Parsi, was staunchly anti-homosexual. So Freddie was very close with his family, but he couldn't open up and talk to them about his sexuality. It was awful for Freddie that he wasn't allowed to be openly gay without fear of backlash and shame. 
uh, as it is for anybody who's experiencing that. Now, luckily, into the 70s, the status quo was beginning to be challenged and the boundaries for fashion and performance were being pushed. Cassie just broke her finger. <laughs> I did not. But I was trying to itch my leg and I slammed my hand to the table. Okay. I'll well, be okay. Okay. You good? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to take a cry break? <laughs> no. Okay. I'm good. So... Yeah, um, luckily into the 70s, the status quo was being challenged and the boundaries for fashion and performance were being pushed. Thank Rocky Horror Picture Show, Mick Jagger, and Glam Rock for that. Right, and during this time and throughout the rest of his career, Freddie was openly dating both men and women, so I guess his parents didn't really pay much attention to the media then. I mean, he was, it it was like, kind of openly... He wasn't super in the spotlight. He always had these dudes kind of around him. Um, but he wasn't, like we said, doing interviews and stuff where he was talking about this and actually addressing yeah. the question. Like sure. the guys knew, kind of, but he, again, he didn't talk about it with anybody. It was just, yeah. everybody kind of knew Assumed. and like had this inkling. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, in the band Smile in 1970, the early songs of Queen began to form like Keep Yourself Alive and Killer Queen, both of which are on the playlist for this episode if you search for death by music podcast or death by death by podcast team on spotify or look in the uh show notes you can find a link to the playlist which just has a bunch of shit that we mentioned in the show today um so they started wearing black crushed velvet pants platform shoes and silver jewelry basically my get up today their first review said four very peculiar looking young gentlemen clad in silk and too many jewels making enough row to wake half the dead in cornwall it's a pretty good review after that gig freddie had the idea for a name change queen but not in a gay way in a regal way so he convinced them then freddie or farouk balsara became freddie mercury it came from a song that he had written uh, called My Fairy King with a line saying, Oh, Mother Mercury, what have you done to me? The name change helped him to, as Dana Carvey says in Master of Disguise, become another person. <laughs> I don't remember much of Master of Disguise other than like... The tur- I'm a turtle. I saw it in theaters when I was a child. Oh my God, I love that movie. <laughs> pretty much it. So they performed a small private show on July 18th, 1970. Uh, they made their public debut on July 25th in Cornwall. Mike Gross, their bass player, made the upsetting mistake to leave the band after this first show. No regrets. They hired a new bass player, Barry Mitchell, who was a little taken aback when Freddie suggested that they wear women's clothing on stage. Now, as the book describes, he didn't share the confidence slash arrogance of the rest of the band. All right. Enter Mary Austin, who Jake mentioned earlier. Now, she was or maybe it was Cassie. I don't remember. She was a customer service rep at a fashionable store called Biba. Brian May had actually taken her out on a few dates. But once Freddie's relationship with Rosemary ended, he began to pursue Mary. He asked her out several times. And when she finally agreed, everyone could see that the two were deeply in love. They moved together in five months, which I do not recommend. Nope. No. (laughs) Absolutely not. not. Red flag. Run away. Big red flag. Maybe he is a fucking bum or maybe he's pretending to be straight. Who knows? Those are the only two options. And honestly, (laughs) he's probably just a bum. Yeah, he's most likely a bum. Uh, Barry Mitchell, the newly hired queen bassist, was pretty confused by Freddie's actions. Um, on one hand, he was head over heels for this Mary Austin woman, but at the same time, Barry recalls, Freddie was always full of wild gestures, hands flying around, and would be very 
demonstrative demonstrative when he <laughs> greeted you. Is that how you say that? Demonstrative. 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 <laughs> um, when he greeted you. Don't get me wrong. He was great fun, and we all got used to him, but all this limp wrist stuff, Ugh. I was sure it was all part of the act. I already knew what he was up to with the band's image, and I assumed this caper was just an extension of that. I never wondered seriously about him being gay, because there was no sign of anything other than a heterosexual relationship with Mary. Barry didn't last very long in the band. He was out by 1971. Uh, they briefly hired this guy named Doug Bogey. Which sounds... Zoogie boogie. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, sounds like a very American name to me. But he jumped around too much on stage and it didn't vibe very well with the other members. He was quickly replaced with John Deacon, which completed the iconic Queen lineup of 20 years. Just imagine being that close to being a part of one of the biggest rock bands in history and you just didn't make it. Yeah, That's got to suck. Literally jumped around too much on stage. <laughs> I would feel like such shit. I would never move again. I want to know what happened to him. Like, did he go and tell people like, I used to be in Queen before they were Queen. I did would. they believe him? Imagine, imagine no being a part almost of something really big and then you get erased. And it's very, mentioned in a podcast. It's very like meta. 30 years later. No, 40 years. we've literally, we're erasing somebody's history right now. Uh, all the guys, except for Freddie, had studies to return to, but eventually they decided to take the plunge and make music a full-time pursuit. Freddie, not only a front man, wanted to make sure the band was well-marketed. To help with branding, Mercury's art and graphic design degree was put to good use when he designed the iconic Queen... Iconic. <laughs> iconic Queen Quest. <laughs> Leave that in there. I don't care. <laughs> so that crest is made up of zodiac signs of the whole band, which is two Leo lions for John and Roger, a cancer crab for Brian, and two fairies to represent Freddy, who is a Virgo. The Q and the crown represent the band name, and the phoenix is where to... Pr- is there to protect the whole thing. Uh, watch out for those cancer crabs, folks. Oh, my God. Thanks for the uh, bad warning. Bad news all around. Uh, am I the only one who finds it funny that Freddie's sign was two fairies? No. Okay. <laughs> uh, I did actually look it up, though. According to astrostyle.com, the Virgo sign is a maiden or virgin holding wheat. Weed. So I'm not. Yes, weed. Um, I'm not sure wheat. where the fairy thing comes into play. I think that might just be Freddie's play on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I did find it interesting that Virgo is ruled by Mercury. So that explains Freddy. where he got the Mercury from. Hmm. And the song. Now, Brian had a friend who had just set up a studio and they needed to test out a rock band on the equipment. The game? In return. Oh, that would be fun. Jake has there rock, band. Did they ever, rock band. Did they do a whole Queen rock no. band? Dang, they, they should have done that. They should have. They did no. a Beatles one. Yeah, they had, if you they guys had Beatles. Beatles. Rock they, band video game. It was uh, so Beatles, fun. and then uh, the, uh, Metallica had a Guitar Hero game. Mm. I hate Guitar Hero. So Why did they never do a whole Queen one? That would have been sick. I don't know. Cool. People forget that Queen is the greatest band to ever exist. That is dumb to forget that. Yeah. Uh, so anyways, <laughs> Queen would get professionally produced demo tracks recorded with state-of-the-art technology, which is pretty sick. In, 19, in early 1972, Queen played a show to six people. Obviously, Aww. that was super upsetting. I wouldn't even play at that point. But <laughs> they were making connections in the music industry and in their attempts to get signed. And there were a few meetings lined up, and Queen was finally offered a contract by Charisma. Freddie slept on it and then turned it down, saying that he didn't want to 
be second fiddle to Genesis and that they need far more than 25,000 pounds, which is 260,000 pounds today, which is $350,000 to sign that deal. Yeah, he was trying to out money Phil Collins and friends, but I'd rather listen to Queen. So, yeah, he's right. Mm -hmm. So um, he topped it off by saying Charisma wasn't a big enough label for their band. Well, at the same time, the members of Queen were very much starving artists. Uh, It's an interesting strategy. We talk about all the time bands just couldn't get signed like Pantera, but Queen was over here turning down offers. It honestly added to their allure. The labels were like, what? Uh, This attitude worked for them. Go ahead, Jake. Laugh it out. The face you made when you said, what? (laughs) (laughs) They'll never know. Anyways, that attitude worked for them. They signed three separate agreements to cover publishing the record deal and management on separate contracts. The label Trident was down and also ended up buying the band a new PA system, all new instruments, and got their manager secured. Freddie was very adamant about not just writing music, but being aware of what was going on business-wise and not being taken advantage of. Smart. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people, I think, <laughs> overlook that. Yeah. Yeah. So, just... Common, common theme in a lot of the stories we do. Yeah, where they just are, like, so happy trust to be signed. person, yeah. Yeah. Don't read the contract, just sign it. But he's kind of a control freak, and I like that about him. Uh, Despite working on the contracts with Trident, it took Queen seven months to get officially signed. Trident had been putting them on showcases and sending out demos to overseas labels to no avail. Eventually, a rep from EMI, who had already turned Queen down, heard their demo tape and demanded a meeting. At the same time, Queen was recorded for BBC Radio on a Sounds of the 70s broadcast. Their songs drew up quite the response from the public, and EMI pushed harder to finally sign Queen in 1973. The deal covered the UK, Europe, and the US. Their first album, Queen, was released in July of 1973, with mixed reviews calling it both superb and a bucket of piss. So it just sounded like sloshing water. Not only that, it smelled bad, too. Oh, yeah. The album did pick up some steam. (laughs) And they started hot They started recording on Queen Two and tried to snag some more live gigs. They began as support for Mott the Hoople on a UK tour, which began on my birthday in 1973. I I didn't think you were that old. I wasn't born in 1973, but I was, however, born on November 12th, which is when the tour started. The- The audiences loved Queen's performances far more, and they saw their potential to be a headliner rather than support. Some fans even recalled being so exhilarated by Queen's performances that they left Mott the Hoople early. That's what happened when I went to go see Bob Dylan. I was really there for my morning jacket, and then when Bob Dylan came on, I left. Anyway. (laughs) She's real proud of that fact. Mm-hmm. Um, Queen was still having trouble making their big break, but it finally came in February of 1974 with the help of David Bowie, kind of. Bowie had to cancel a BBC performance at the last minute, and the producer called EMI to figure out a replacement, which, you guessed it, became Queen. They performed on top of the pops to an audience of around 15 million people. That's pretty good for a first uh run out on the tv there um so even though it was their first tv performance it wasn't a live show they were lip syncing and it's pretty obvious if you go back and watch the video it is on youtube for those of you interested uh the album version of seven seas of rye is playing with them looking quite disenchanted performing it 
Oh, just like they they not played the enchanted. album version of the song, and then they the 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 band was lip syncing to the album version. Mm. So, so while it's still a Queen show, and I'm sure people back then were like, "Wow, this is really cool." They Queen, sound just Queen like the album. Like, yeah, Queen was just like, "What the fuck is this shit?" <laughs> we, we thought we were actually performing, you know. Yeah. So two days later, they rushed to release Seven Seas of Rye as a single, and it finally broke the top ten. But it's the piano intro for me. Yeah, so uh, good. <laughs> Hold on. Is it the bug guy spraying for it skeetos? Do they they just drive around and do that? Yeah. Uh, Fuck, yeah. No. Some dude on his lawnmower. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Very slowly going by. The first version of Seven Seas of Rye was instrumental closing to the first album but later reappeared fully formed on queen 2 during an interview in 1977 mercury said the song's subject came to him as a figment of his imagination man i wish my mind would give me some figments that would produce award-winning music i don't know if you guys this is like a side but like charlie puth if you follow Mm -hmm. him on tiktok this man (laughs) jake's like like, i love the clocks (laughs) um (laughs) he literally will be like I had this song stuck in my head, so I woke up and wrote a song at 3 a.m. And then he'll just like produce a hit, and I don't understand. That's Paul McCartney wow. level shit. Ugh, yeah. It's so cool, but it like makes me so angry that I don't have that brain. <laughs> yeah. I guess I'm just jealous. Maybe you should do more drugs. I'm a hater. No, oh. I don't think. <laughs> no, I don't good. think you can do drugs while pregnant. You definitely oh, you can. can, but you're almost done. Oh. You shouldn't. You do can, drugs. but you shouldn't. Oh right, 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 right. So the band was blowing up, and Mary Austin was beginning to question her relationship with Freddie. She felt out of place at shows. The girls they would all rush to Freddie as soon as he'd come off stage. Mary didn't really think that Freddie needed her anymore, but she wasn't upset about it. She got to see him flourishing and becoming famous, which is what she thought he was destined to be. I mean, I wouldn't be mad either knowing he wrote The Love of My Life about me. Yeah. Uh, Soon, Freddie began cheating on Mary with David Minns, who was an out record executive with Elektra. Even David was surprised when Freddie kissed him in public, not knowing that Freddie was even gay, which is like, meh. Uh, he had been claiming Mary was just a friend, uh, but that they only had one bed at their apartment. So it was pretty clear to David that Freddie had actually been cheating. After the release of Queen 2, the band followed Mott the Hoople to the U.S. for a 40-date tour, but they were only able to get about half of the tour done, as Brian May was diagnosed with hepatitis. Ooh. As he recovered in the hospital, the rest of the band began writing music for their third album, Sheer Heart Attack. This one was incredibly diverse, with vaudeville, melodic, and dark and heavy sounds throughout. Killer Queen was on this album, written in a single night, one that Freddie enjoyed placing next to hard rock, energetic songs. He called this one a black suspender belt number, and when asked what it was about, he said, I'm trying to say that classy people can be whores as well. It's like the OG, <laughs> like, we want a lady in the street, but, but a, a freak, freak in the, the sheets. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> what? It's my that terrible was... little John impression. Oh, it was Ying Yang Twins that we quoted yesterday. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> what? Yeah. But we talked about Ying Yang Twins yes. yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, oh, because Riley said geese, 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 and Alex thought she was going, ah, geese, 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 geese. Yeah, we yeah, were driving to funny. the amphitheater, and there were a bunch of geese, and she was like, geese, 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 geese. Oh, geese, geese, goddamn. Um, right, so anyways, the song hit number two in the UK and charted in the US, and they had their first headlining British and European tour. On that tour, producer John Anthony got a call from Freddie to come to his room. 
Freddie confided to John that he was gay, and he asked him to tell Mary. John didn't do that, but Mary knew that something was up. She actually didn't find out for a while, but at first figured that he was just cheating with women. Now, after lots of distance and sneaking around, Freddie finally said to her, I think I'm bisexual. Mary said, no, I think you're gay. No fighting. The two just hugged and remained friends, and Mary moved out to a place next door. It's nice because it's it's like figuring out, like, you love someone as a person, but not as like a romantic person and mm-hmm. you're better off as friends which is nice and that's pretty common well that, that's called getting friend zoned no. no that's different <laughs> that's, that's never giving that person a chance to begin with because you know that, that you don't have those suck. feelings that they're a bum and they're just trying to move in with you a bum um, with they, no money they like genuinely yeah. they had a relationship together yeah they both loved each other mm-hmm. but knew it wasn't going to work out and it was reasons beyond their control like I feel like that is so much less common than and it's only because he found out that he was gay if it was any other reason like say he had been cheating with women that would be unforgivable i think maybe he finally started admitting it to himself because he was definitely gay before that and he he just maybe didn't want to well i'm just saying in most i I feel like in most situations where there is a heterosexual breakup so you're talking outside of freddie yeah you want to remain friends afterwards that that's generally that's just something you tell largely impossible like some people can do it yeah very fucking rare Oh, yeah. I think the reason why they were able to do it is because it was circumstances beyond their control. So they could admit, I still have love for you, whatever. It will literally never work out and I can't even be mad. You know? Yeah. I think it happens sometimes with, like, when couples divorce, they realize they fall out of love, but they can still be friends because they have to co-parent or what have you. Like, that's, yeah. I think, is more common now that divorce is not as, like... Yeah, but I feel like even then they're just like, they're just co-parenting. They're probably not, they're like amicable, but probably not like friends. Like they actually remained friends and would still hang out and call each other and do stuff. I would fucking never, ever do that with any of my exes except for Thomas. I think she literally (laughs) lived next door at one point, didn't she? That's what it said. She She moved moved next door. The girl next door. Yeah. All right. Uh, Jake was listening. (laughs) In 1974, Queen, like TLC at their height, they were selling millions of records and all over the world, but they had little money in their own personal accounts to show for it. Freddie was getting demanding and exclaimed, I want it all and I want it now. Uh, soon, it's your money. Have, I, have it when you seven, need seven it. cash now. <laughs> oh, that's what it is. It's your money. Use JG it when Wentworth. you need it. I fucking hate those commercials. Then the fucking jingle. Yes. I, when I was at work, I would we'd be in the break room and that commercial would come on. I would get up and grab the remote and mute the TV. Um, I do like J.G. Wentworth commercials. For all of our international listeners, of which there are quite a few, <laughs> <Yeah>. J.G. Wentworth <laughs> is some co- weird company in the United States that advertises literally everywhere um, where they give you like cash loans on the spot or something if you have like a settlement. What is it? I don't know. Uh, if you have yeah, a structured like, like settlement a, and you need cash now, call J.G. Wentworth. That's it. That, and they fucking remember what their company does now because of their fucking commercial. Back Brilliant. Oh, a couple years ago, um, the comedian Aidy Bryant, who's on SNL, was doing, she was trying to get donations for somebody that was running for like Senate or governor for Arizona. And because she's from there 
anytime somebody would donate money to her, she would like do a different jingle that was like regional to where they lived at the time. Oh, oh my god! And it was really funny. Like, <laughs> I didn't even find those. I mean, she lived there at a certain point, so it was kind of like the JG Wentworth how that like plays all the time, or that Education Connection commercial that plays all the time. Hmm. So she was just doing stuff like that, and it was really funny. Anyway. Um, so sorry that on the Freddie Mercury episode, as we're discussing the best vocalist of all time, you had to hear me singing J.G. Wentworth's commercial. Also, J.G. Wentworth, advertise with us. Just kidding. All of that quality content coming from us here at uh, Death by Music Podcast. I think that a lot of our listeners have a structured settlement and need cash now. Oh my gosh. Well, have we got a solution for you. <laughs> Call J.G. Wentworth. Um, Jake's gonna murder me. Uh, okay. Yes. Right. So let's talk about a song that's actually good. In 1975. <laughs> 1975. Uh, in that year came the release of Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh and that Lord. would be where they get it all. Uh, the band began noticing that the record label was buying Rolls Royces while denying the band members advances to move out of their shitty apartments. Didn't you mention they were trying to avoid this earlier on? How did they fall into this trap? Well, um, I think we'll get into it, but I don't remember because I actually wrote this over a year ago. Yeah. So hopefully I did get into it. They hired, <laughs> they hired a lawyer, Jim Beach, while heading out on their U.S. tour, and it became his job to work out a severance from Trident. Oh, right. Remember, so they had signed all these different like little labels for management, publishing, whatever the fuck. Okay. So while the band was in the United States, it was noticed that Freddie was hitting Oh, this is a totally different tangent. That should it. have been a new paragraph, probably. Uh, hold on. Okay. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Side note. All right. So, they were working on getting the severance from Trident. Break. New paragraph. While the band was in the United States, it was noticed that Freddie was hitting all of the gay clubs and scenes in North America. Soon... They had to cancel several shows because of what doctors claimed were throat nodules and laryngitis that were fucking with his voice. And somehow through all of that, Freddie managed to keep his sexuality in the closet, even from his own bandmates. He claimed that the hot dudes following him around and waiting on him hand and foot were just servants and that he was royalty. I mean, they had to have known. During an interview with Sunday Times in 2017, bandmate Brian May said it was fairly obvious when visitors to Freddie's dressing room started to change from hot chicks to men. And Freddie was known for telling his friends how enormous his sex drive was. He even wrote a song about it being a sex machine ready to reload. Like an <laughs> but May didn't say around what time this was, so maybe they didn't know yet. It doesn't matter, though. It's not like his sexuality had any hand in how talented he was. No, not at all. But I do find it funny that he was, uh, quote, noticed that he was hitting all the gay clubs and whatnot. I don't think you just noticed that and not think, huh, I bet he's gay. I just wonder if they were like the band and the crew were like just super chill and they had like an unspoken understanding between them because this is still the seventies. Yeah. It's yeah. still very risky to be a gay person. In, I mean, and, this and, is in America. True. And all, yes, it, they're in America. And also, um, letting that type of information out at that time could have ruined the band. Right. So here's something, here's a perspective. It's the mid seventies. It's the United States. We can now say that these were gay clubs. Right. But right. It's not like 
nowadays where oh, we I see what you're saying. know that yeah. the wave is it literally the rainbow declare, cactus yeah yeah they declare themselves right we are a gay bar you couldn't say that back then that's true not here that's a not tr- then yeah, yeah. That's so a good point i think that's why people were just like i'm pretty sure and if they're traveling around the united states Brian May doesn't know that the fucking 37th and Zen is the gay bar, but they probably like drive by and are like, I have some questions. But like, <laughs> it's not but, really. Yeah. And you can also go into a gay bar not being gay. So yeah. it doesn't really matter. So it's I, just. I, I think these before. are just places where yeah, gay people very common. knew that they were maybe they were safe and they could meet up without necessarily getting arrested. And so they would maybe lawnmower man's the back guy in the lawnmower very slowly driving <laughs> by the house lawnmower, again dude so i think you know how expensive gas is anyway sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so i think that these weren't again openly gay bars i think that these were right. bars that in in retrospect like they, maybe they sure. went there and they were just kind of like well this place is fucking interesting well, everyone here can dance really good i don't know that they went with them because freddie would disappear yeah well, if they, I mean, so, somebody knew that he was going to gay bars, but I think maybe they, they noticed that something was a little bit different, but it wasn't like today where you could just walk in and be like, oh, there's rainbow flags everywhere. This must be the gay bar. Right. So that's probably why they're saying like it was just unspoken for a really long time and nobody really questioned it because you couldn't just be gay right. like that, like exactly. all open and whatever. So yeah. anyways, um, when they arrived back in the UK, they settled on a severance deal with Trident that included Queen paying them 100,000 pounds and 1% of royalties on their next six albums. They said bye and linked up with Elton John's manager, John Reed. Now with John, they recorded A Night at the Opera, which was one of the most expensive albums to produce ever at the time yeah wow. it cost an estimated forty thousand pounds that's about three hundred and fifty seven thousand pounds or four hundred twenty four thousand dollars today i would translate that into other currencies but what's the point <laughs> don't do it it's, it's a lot of money we don't do yeah, math it's, it's we expensive do music. Yes, so it was coming after a lot of turmoil for the band, so its success was crucial. Bohemian Rhapsody. Let's talk about it. Bohemian Rhapsody is probably the first Queen song I heard as a small child. Um, My dad had what I now know is a Buick. It was a small white Buick, four-door. It had these like checkered patterns on the seats. It was like a velvet felt seat. Okay, I was thinking checkerboard seats. No, 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 no. They were blue seats with like square patterns and they were so uncomfortable for long time like periods of time because it would start to like encroach into your leg fat anyway, what does that have to do with bohemian Rhapsody? we were in the car listening to this so part of the ingrained memory listen our parent our grandparents lived in suffolk which when you're a kid that is a very far drive not so. england no yes yeah, so virginia <laughs> suffolk, virginia. um and we you know we'd be in the car for a long period of time with these checkered prints on our legs and our dad would just play queen and we would headbang to bohemian rhapsody when like as like four and five year olds because mm-hmm. it was just like we're like yeah rock metal yeah rock metal um <laughs> that sounds exactly like what you would say <laughs> yeah i was a small infant um but i, I hadn't seen wayne's world at that point obviously because i was born the year it was released but this is the second dana carvey reference today Oh shit, he was in Wayne's World. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I still love listening to Queen in the car because you can like really bump it and just bump. Oh yeah. Not me. My two of my speakers are blown. Probably probably from listening to Queen in the car. <laughs> <laughs> uh well, so I I know I had heard it before Wayne's World for sure, but it was Wayne's World where it finally definitely where I remember it sticking. 
and uh, where it became really cool for me. Uh, in fact, I don't recall actually having any of Queen's albums growing up. Maybe the exception <laughs> of uh, Queen's Greatest Hits. Uh, it was like a two-CD mm-hmm. set, and it was like a red or blue cover or something like they that. I don't remember. There was like a maroon one with gold, and then a blue one with gold. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was it was one of those two. ABBA gold was also maroon, I think. ABBA. It was black. ABBA. My coworker thought they were called ABBA for the longest ABBA. time. <laughs> so she'd been calling them ABBA, and I was like, what did you just call them? And she was like, ABBA? ABBA. And I was like, you mean ABBA? And she was like, oh dear God. <laughs> she got really embarrassed. It was very funny. Anyway, uh, she wonderful. knows the difference now. Uh, yeah, anyways. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I did Jake. have a copy of the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra Plays Queen, and that's Ooh. where I knew a bunch of Queen songs before I'd ever actually heard the you know Queen's what? versions of them. It's weird. Interesting. That happens, that happens with Weird Al a lot. Did you do everything ass backwards? I want to. I did. I want to see if that <laughs> album is on Spotify or something because that would be really cool. Uh, to listen it is. To. It is up there. Uh, but yeah, anyways, that, I, I learned a lot of Queen songs through that before actually hearing the real versions. Uh, more importantly, though, did you know? That Weird Al covered the uh, song. Oh, my God. <laughs> and he did use a lot of burps in his songs. If you listen to them, especially like Alapalooza and stuff like that. Right. A lot of burps, a lot of hand farts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, notice I said covered and not parodied. He didn't change any of the lyrics. He just rearranged it into a polka, which he called Bohemian Polka. Oh. It was released in 1993 on Alapalooza. And also, I do believe, just off the top of my head here, that's the only cover song he's ever released on an album. He does cover songs in his live shows, but I, mm-hmm. I do believe, like all of his albums, they're either original works or parodies, and that's the only cover. He's not singing on it, right? He's just covering the music? What? No, he's singing No, he, he he's singing it too? Yep, you know, I, I usually tell, I like, I'm like, don't cover Queen, but I feel like Weird Al would be the only one I would be like okay with covering Queen. Have Anyone else can just like cover? stop. Do you remember when fucking- Stop! I she <laughs> already knows what I'm going to say, and because I fucking I hate, hate his guts. That. I hate his voice. I oh. always have. He's a shit human. Who, we're not going to talk about him. Who else knows who we're talking about? <laughs> you just you should know. Give him a second. Sucks. Give him a second to yell. Did you say Brendan Urie? Because you're right. He sucks, dude. He covered Bohemian Rhapsody and was so fucking terrible. I was talking to somebody about Brendan Urie the other day. His voice, like Brendan Urie, is <laughs> it's so. <laughs> piercing in a bad way and i feel like he's always flat or sharp he's like never hitting the right funnily enough tiktok has brought to my attention because people still go see this dread human being live and (laughs) his voice he's not had formal vocal training i can and he does not know how to a control it or b take care of it yeah and the more he tours the like his he's not gonna have a voice after I know, Honestly, a couple more years of touring. Because are we okay with that? I'm though? fine <laughs> with this man. He should be in jail. He's nasty. Brandon anyway, Mary of Panic at the Disco, dude. Like he, I. It just, it's kind of painful listening to him cover that song when he covered. I was like, bro, what the fuck? And we played it on the radio station, and I was like, we need to not. It hurts my ears, and it is such a fucking disservice to freddie mercury like well the fact that you <laughs> the think, disrespect yeah what the fuck man who do you think you are covering that man who do you think you are? well weird al did it correctly so I, that's I, yeah I, I, i'd probably be fine with that but weird al does everything correctly and he can actually sing yeah he's, like, got, he's, a good he's voice. got a great singing voice whether you like it or not i know it's not some uh, people's particular style Jake, get more angry if and you don't like weird al then go the, fuck yourself <laughs> 
What she said. Okay. Now, this <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody, the original, not Brandon Urie's version, because they probably spent $5 on that shit. Uh, this one by Queen was the most expensive single ever recorded at the time it was released. It was six minutes long with three distinct parts or movements. It doesn't have a chorus. It talks about murder. And <laughs> it has an operatic I'm section. sorry. That says it's about murder. <laughs> what? Your, your line literally says it's about murder, not it talks about murder. The whole song is about a murder. That's what it says. You wrote it's about a murder. Is that not right? I mean, That's not what you metaphorical. Said. You said it's about what did you say? <laughs> you didn't say that. You said it talks about it murder. It talks about murder. But it does. this is but this one just says it's about murder. So, so that makes it seem like that's the whole plot of the song is just someone murdering someone. It Sorry. is. Metaphorically. No, literally the plot is that metaphorically it's him being gay or whatever. He says, Mama, I killed a man, blah blah blah. And the whole song's about how he killed somebody. Literally that's what it's about. Figuratively, it represents some other shit. Okay. You're confusing the fuck out of me right now. I'm lost, so okay. I'll let Anyways, you guys hash this out. It has an operatic no. <laughs> section. So basically, this song was a huge fucking risk, but the risk paid off. Nothing like it has ever come since. Now, while uh, many of their songs were group efforts, this one was one that Freddie had worked out completely solo and had to explain to the others in recording sessions. Now, even so, once in the studio, the song continued to evolve. It ended up taking three weeks to lay down, which was typically what it took to do a whole album at that time. Apparently, they spent many 12-hour days laying down 200-plus vocal tracks to create the operatic choir. Roger did the highs, Brian did the lows, and Freddie took everything in between. The funny thing is, is they all took this time to compose this song with no idea how all the components were going to fit together as a whole, but yeah. they all just trusted Freddie's direction. Yeah, because like nowadays you can just lay this shit down in pro tools or whatever and yeah. like stack up all the tracks and hear how it sounds and if you don't like it then you can revise it you could not fucking do that when you were working with tape they just had to lay everything down and let the producers <laughs> manually work their magic analog yeah. do this shit so john had the right idea john deacon he volunteered to sit out nah. <laughs> Their producer, Roy Thomas Baker, was proud to be in the room that day, quoted saying, he was standing in the back of the control room and he just knew that they were listening for the first time to a big page of history. They also used the same piano the Beatles recorded Hey Jude on in the song. I love Paul McMotherfucking Carney. Finally, the masterpiece was complete. Now the mission would be selling radio stations on a six minute long single. Freddie said cutting a song would never be an option for them. Uh, while listening to the album in its entirety, music critics automatically thought that You're My Best Friend was the single. Boo. Until they heard the final track, and then they were absolutely floored. A gay controversial radio DJ, Kenny Everett, broke the rules of his station. Sounds like Alex. I know exactly what this is pertaining to, even a year later. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And started playing the song in snippets. Should we go into that? Nah. Let him think. In general. I can do it in one sentence. At a radio station Cassie and I used to work at, I used to play Slayer on the radio, <laughs> thinking I would only get in but so much trouble. But then they pretty much just, like, pulled me off. Alex lives <laughs> by the rule, don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. Yeah. I was and not that's how she's to. gotten to where she is today. I was not supposed to be playing Slayer. 
<laughs> okay, so uh, as we were saying, DJ Kenny Everett broke the rules of his station not only by like playing the song, but he also started playing it in just snippets. Now, over two days, he played the whole damn song 14 different times. Now, listener calls flooded the radio station, but the record wasn't even pressed yet. It started happening in the U.S. next as someone else got their hands on a copy. Now, this song was breaking records on both sides of the water, and it wasn't even released until Halloween of 1975. By November, it was the number one song with an insanely expensive music video to go with it. There are many interpretations of the song, but Freddie was famous for not explaining his lyrics and adamant that people interpret them in their own way. uh, You know, I hear that's the key to making something great. Create a structure with a little bit of information, and then you just let the audience and the fans figure out the rest, and, you know, they interpret and fill in the blanks. Maybe we should start taking that direction with the show. Just give them the very bare bones of the story and let them figure out <laughs> let what the them fuck figure happened. out the rest of their entertainment <laughs> yeah uh many close to freddie saw it as him as his coming out song with three parts defining his own separate lives and the kill the man line was referring to him killing his former self and coming out as homosexual then the operatic section voices pulling him in every which way it makes sense that it was his inner voice trying to pull himself between mary and david now whatever you think it's like the most famous song ever in the world yeah honestly you could play the song anywhere from family reunions to major league baseball games and every crowd would sing along yeah and everybody knows the song and we will rock you and we are the champions sure yeah <laughs> but like Bohemian Rhapsody pressure. is probably like yeah. the number one song of all time probably ever. i think it's never the- to exist ever in the history of the world. It's either Bohemian Rhapsody or Stairway to Heaven. That's like the number one I most prefer Bohemian Rhapsody song on the radio ever. Well, anyways, this is where we are going to pick up for part two of Freddie Mercury next time uh, in the future. In the past future. Soon. In so, the future's past. Yeah. Which will happen eventually, but not yet. Oh uh, well, I think that we are going <laughs> to release both parts of freddie mercury at the same time yeah. just so you guys can continue that the would story. be very confusing to so have two separate differently recorded episodes going with on different at the same people time. on right <laughs> so uh we'll release both parts at the same time so if you are concluding freddie mercury part one right now you may start freddie mercury part two and it will be with jake uh anyways thank you guys for listening make sure you follow us in on facebook we have a facebook page called uh death by podcast team and then we have a facebook group where you get a little bit more one-on-one interaction called death by music podcast fans again if you want a t-shirt send us an email death by podcast team at gmail.com and make sure you check out the playlist that cassie created for the show uh on spotify it's in the show notes i think that that is all and uh whoa 90 minutes still not our longest recording but we have broken this in too (laughs) anyways rest in peace bye later Music by Demons, at Demons Band on Instagram. Artwork by Mike Johnson. Writing and production by Cassie Gardner, Alex Motler, and Jake.